How does inequality affect women's well-being? Today, I speak with Rosemary Fike. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, your temporary host. Alex is away on break, so I'll be filling in while he's away. Today, I'm speaking with Rosemary Fike. Rosemary Fike is an instructor of economics at Texas Christian University and a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. She received her MA in economics at George Mason University and her PhD in economics at Florida State University. She's an alumna of the Mercatus Center's MA Fellowship and Adam Smith Fellowship programs. Her current research focuses on understanding the effects that different types of economic institutions have on the lives and status of women. She's the author of the Fraser Institute's Women in Progress Report. In 2017, she received the Addington Prize for Measurement. Her scholarly work has been published in the Eastern Economics Journal, Journal for Economic Education, and Journal of Benefit Cost Analysis. She's published opinion editorials in news outlets such as U.S. News and World Report, The Hill, and Roll Call. So, Rosemary, our question today is, how does inequality affect women's well-being? I think there is a tendency to use that as somewhat of a throwaway line, and like everyone nods and says, yep, that's true. But I'm excited to actually explore this in depth with you today. It's probably best to start with defining what we mean and, and understanding that what the problem is that you're trying to solve here. So my first question to you is, what do you mean exactly by inequality? Uh, is it just about things like pay equity or is it more, is there more to it than that? And what's the problem you're examining exactly? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. I think that's a first, a perfect point to clarify up front. Um, because when, when I talk about inequality, a lot of people, they start to think about inequality over the outcomes and things like the gender wage gap. And those are things I'm really interesting in understanding why they happen, um, but the inequality I'm particularly focused on is inequality over who has access to economic institutions. So inequality over the rights and the freedoms that people have. For example, um, in many countries, you know, women, there are rules that are that restrict the type of occupation women might be allowed to enter into. So I, in Bulgaria, the example that always stands out in my mind women aren't allowed to work jobs that deal with pesticides. And so, you know, while that might not be my most preferred line of work, it's surely going to be somebody's best opportunity. Um, and so that type of inequality, inequality over the the choice set that I'm allowed to, to make. Okay. And so one of the main parts of inequality is access to economic freedom, as you sort of hinted to already. And how do you define that exactly? It seems to be a primary cause for concern in your research on inequality in women. Uh, why is it that way? So economic freedom to me is about having control over yourself and how you spend your time and who you want to engage in exchanges with. And so it's really about self-direction. Um, so the ability to own property, the ability to enter into a business contract, um, the ability to open up a bank account or, or have a job without getting somebody else's permission first. And so those are things that ultimately give people the ability to take more control over the direction of their life. 
And I, I really think about economic freedom and economic rights as fundamental human rights, that if you do not have property rights and self-ownership, um, it's very difficult to secure other types of freedoms that we might care about, like civil liberties or political freedoms. Uh, so I think that we have a better understanding of what you're trying to solve and the definitions of everything. But before we get into the work you're actually doing on this, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how you got particularly interested in this topic and uh, why you do the huge amount of work that you do to make these reports a reality. <laughs> well, it you know, like many things in, in life, uh, things happen by happy accidents sometimes. And I just so happened to, as a graduate student at Florida State University, I was assigned to be a research assistant to James Gortney. And uh, many of your listeners might know that he's the scholar that is really the the person responsible for creating uh, the Economic Freedom of the World Index along with many, many other people, but Jim has really championed that project. And so as his research assistant, I worked very closely with him um, and with the other team of scholars like Robert Lawson and, and Josh Hall um, in learning about you know, how do you measure the quality of economic institutions? Um, because if economists think things like institutions matter in terms of growth, and by institutions, I just mean like laws and rules, if we think that the quality of laws and rules matter, then we should learn how to measure them and we should be able to have the ability to test that hypothesis. Um, and through conversations with Jim, uh, we got to talking about how, you know, it's really nice if a country has low tax rates. It's really nice if their currency is, is stable and predictable. Um, it's really nice if, you know, you get to, keep a bigger portion of your income. But if you're not able to access those laws equally, you know, what good is that overarching economic freedom? And so through our conversations, we realized that the data that they were using just kind of assumed that everybody has equal access to these, these institutions, that everybody benefits from them equally. And in a lot of countries, women's ability to, to own property or even travel around the country on their own, um, these things are, are drastically restricted. And so 50% of the population may not be as free as what the index was previously depicting. And so we were thinking really hard, you know, that was probably about, you know, 2000. 12 when we first started kind of having those conversations. And at that time, a lot of international organizations started to pay more attention to this type of issue. And so the World Bank started releasing a report called Women, Business, and the Law, where they were exactly measuring, you know, what are women and men treated equally under these laws? Um, and so we started pouring through different sources of data and that became my dissertation. Um, the main focus of my dissertation was to think about how can we innovate on this measure and take advantage of all the new international data coming out about women's rights. And um, we focused on 
where I focus in on um, rights from a negative rights perspective. So, um, and we can think about uh, two different conceptions of rights, negative rights and positive rights. And negative rights are, are freedoms from. So I am free from somebody harming me physically, or I am free from somebody infringing on my property rights. Um, that contrasts to things like positive rights, where somebody might say, I have the right to an education, or I have a right to healthcare. Um, that kind of is a right to some sort of entitlement. And those types of positive rights typically require infringing on somebody else's negative right in order to make that happen. Um, so the spirit of the Economic Freedom of the World Index is really to focus on these, these negative rights conception of, of economic freedom. And so I tried to keep my focus on women's rights along that same kind of spirit, just focusing on what are the laws that infringe on my right to basically you know, own property and, and do the things I would like to do with my life. Um, and so it, it has worked out very well for me. Uh, I've gotten a lot of opportunities to, to talk about this like, like today. And, and I do think it's a really important uh, topic considering you know, a, a lot of the things that we see going on internationally in terms of, of women still fighting for, for equal um, equal legal status, essentially. That's right. And I think that's a really important uh, aspect of it. And as someone, I myself am someone who's concerned about women's outcomes, particularly in developing countries. Um, and I've noticed over the years studying it that many like quote unquote objective measures, and you, you say this also in your work, um, these objective, as you say, measures of economic variables are often based towards a male's perspective. So it really excludes the fact that Women do far more unpaid household labor and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and why how why that's so important that we're actually moving away from just focusing on things like GDP as it is, uh, rather than talking about it uh, in, con- in the context of, of women and, and the way that they are uh, treated, not just in developing countries, but everywhere around the world? Yeah, so... Um, feminist economists have for a long time made this criticism of, of the econ profession because economics is a very male-dominated field. And so from the perspective of, of feminist economists, um, whether intentional or not, and I don't think anybody really uh, thinks it's a malicious or intentional thing, um, but you know, when we are studying the world and when we're asking ourselves what is important and trying to figure out what should be included in measures of productivity or which research questions to ask, we are interested in things that we have experience with, right? Things that I've walked through my life as a woman, so things are going to occur to me that this is important that just might not have ever occurred to somebody who hasn't walked through life as a woman. Um, There's going to be things that are really important to men that are certainly not going to be on my radar. And so when you have a field that's so dominated by a single perspective, I think sometimes when we're putting together objective measures, it is not fully capturing everybody's experience. So Marilyn Waring um, in the 80s wrote a book, If Women Counted, where she put forth this criticism of GDP, basically arguing that 
you know, when you don't include household labor of women, right, this is this important contribution. Um, you're not including it in our measure of productivity. Therefore, you're implicitly saying that this is not productive work. This is not important. And when we focus on making policy decisions to target, well, we want to improve GDP, well, then we're focusing on policies that will improve a measure that doesn't capture what a large portion of the the world's women do. Um, so, you know, if, we, if we're solely focused on increasing, you know, GDP, well, we could pass a, a policies that encourage women to take part-time jobs at, you know, a fast food restaurant instead of stay at home and take care of their children, right? The fast food job is going to raise GDP. Taking care of your children is not, but... It does seem to me that taking care of your children, teaching them how to read, teaching them life skills, that that's a really valuable task to society. Um, so I wanted to take those feminist critiques seriously and think about how we could expand the conception of economic freedom in a way that is is more true to other people's experiences, in a way that's more inclusive of the perspective of, of women. And I hope that going forward, you know, we would be able to um, create other adjustments that might capture, you know, disparities along racial lines or on ethnic lines or along the lines of, you know, sexual identity. So, so these are, are things that there's not a lot of great international data on. And until until that data exists, it's going to be hard to do that. But we could kind of follow a similar process to that I have done with regard to adjusting for disparities along gender lines. I think that's a really good point. And it just underlines how important the work that you're doing is. And it, it turns out that it's not an unfounded concern, after all, the fact that women are not really included uh, traditionally in this kind of work that's done um when so when you do the work that you do and adjust everything to actually reflect gender disparities countries are changing pretty significantly in terms of their scoring and their rank so looking through the numbers i was like pretty shocked by countries like qatar like going down 40 spots or something like like, oh my goodness i mean this is a huge gap (laughs) yeah so there are you know the good news is the vast majority of countries in the data set do actually at least, well, not the vast majority, but there are 62 out of the entire data set that that under the law treat men and women equally, right? So that's the good news. And there's other good news that the gender disparity globally has been on a downward trajectory. But yes, there are still many countries that have even, you know, not maybe not so severe laws like, you know, what you're talking about with Qatar or um, I think the UAE and Jordan were other countries that dropped pretty significantly in previous editions of the Women in Progress report. Um, but it's that a lot of countries had subtle drops where and, and some of those mm. inequalities, um, they're they're easier to address, I think. So there's a lot of uh, Eastern European countries or countries in uh, South and Latin America 
that have laws uh, restricting women's labor market choices, right? And whether those are laws that people, you know, enforce in practice or, or maybe they ignore them to some degree, they're still on the books, right? I could still be denied a promotion if I happen to be in an industry where technically the legal institutions suggest that that's not where women should be permitted to work. Um, so, so those differences still matter as well, because, you know, if I want to be, uh, somebody who, you know, shakes up a profession and, and tries to enter into an occupation that might not traditionally be one where a lot of women enter into, I don't know, like, let's say economics and, you know, we want to kind of challenge and push boundaries um, and be trailblazers. It's really hard to be a trailblazer when the law says you're not allowed to try this, right? So, um, so even you know some of the more subtle infringements on women's economic rights are those are more widespread. Uh, there's only a small subset of countries where you see these drastic uh, differences between how the the restrictions that men face and then the many more restrictions that women mm-hmm. face. But um, the subtle disparities are, are much more prominent. Yeah. And on the subject of disparities, I, I want to talk to you uh, before we get into the research a little bit more about some limitations to the measurements that you think exist um, when you're measuring things like this. I mean, are are there assumptions being made? For example, you just said you made a really good point that some things you can like uh, if you're if it's illegal to do, how can you be a pioneer in a profession? Uh, but what if uh, something is legal? So it's counted as a check. You put that check right there. Like, OK, it's legal. But culturally, um, it's not acceptable from the woman's brother or family or father or something, some sort of patriarchal system in that society that keeps them from doing it out of shame or guilt or societal pressure. So those are things uh, that seem to me like they might be, I'm not an economist, but they seem to me <laughs> that they're harder to measure. So is that, can we say that that might be some, uh, a small limitation of something like a project like this? Yeah. So I do think, you know, Indexes like the Economic Freedom of the World Index, we do try uh, a great deal to focus on formal laws and not as much on informal social norms. But you know, social norms and cultural factors absolutely matter. Um, just think about uh, gender norms regarding you know who's more likely to be responsible for the childcare. Uh, you know, duties of your household. Well, that expectation is that a woman's going to take on more of those roles. And so whether I'm allowed to own property and work, um, if I have this expectation and societal pressure that I should be staying at home with my kids, or I should at least be the sole caregiver or primary caregiver, um, then that's going to have influenced my labor market decisions significantly. Um, so, but it, it's difficult to measure those things. And I also am interested in questions like how do formal rules, how do the formal legal institutions interact with those informal cultural norms? And if you include those informal cultural norms in the index, you really can't explore that type of question. Um, so I really am interested in, in thinking through how how economic freedom influences gender norms, for example. And that's kind of the focus of 
you know, my next women in progress report, we're thinking about how, yeah, we've seen countries over the past couple of years, like you know, Saudi Arabia's it improved dramatically in terms of the formal legal rights that they are granting women. Um, and so, so they rank, they used to be at the very, very bottom of the gender disparity rankings. And, and now um, they're much closer to, to parity in terms of how women and, and men are treated under the law. But does that mean that, you know, men and women are going to have immediately equal labor market outcomes? No, because there are definitely going to be social norms that limit how quickly those outcomes are able to change. Uh, But what I've been looking at, I look at kind of the world value survey data because we can get some data about people's uh, beliefs about you know, what should the role for women be in society? So we can look at questions that measure, you know, do they think that jobs are more important for men or university is more important for men? Kind of questions that capture some sort of gender norm for that for that country. And what I find is that countries that are, are more economically free tend to have gender norms and cultural beliefs that are more tolerant of women taking on employment, higher education, and even political leadership roles. So so there does seem to be this push that once we relax those those formal legal constraints, it's going to take a while for the social norms to catch up, but at least we can now test them out. At least we can challenge the behavior on the ground without, you know, getting arrested for it. That's right. Um, Thanks for talking about that. I think that's something that's important to keep in mind. Um, And the fact that you're doing work on it next is really exciting. I'd love to have you back and talk to talk to me more about that in the future. That sounds really great. Um, But now that we've talked about all this, I will finally get to the actual work that you're doing. (laughs) I'm just so interested in the whole uh, in the whole backstory and everything. So uh, but now I really want to ask you, can just talk a little bit about the work that you do with the Fraser Institute and the Women in Progress uh, report and the Gender Disparity Index. What sorts of things are you actually measuring and how are you going about melding it into the economic freedom of the world research um, overall? So um, there are, as I mentioned before, the World Bank has this great report that they put out. Um, It used to be every other year, but now they're updating it annually. Um, And it's called the Women, Business and Law Report. And it collects data on both um, legal rights like economic rights, uh, like the ones that I'm interested in. Um, But it also collects data about, you know, which countries have like gender quotas, which countries have paid maternity leave and all of those entitlements that other people might be very interested in if they were going to create a gender disparity index. I'm focusing on those negative rights. So I focus on questions like, can women apply for passports in the same way as a man? All right. Or can a woman travel outside of her home or outside of the country in the same way as a man? And if they can, um, if there's no additional laws or barriers that women face, um, I mean, it doesn't mean that the men aren't facing barriers, but if, if I say, 
Um, yes, this country, the answer to that question, can women apply for a passport in the same way as a man is yes. Um, at least women are not facing additional barriers that men do not have to face. Um, and so there's a, a list of about 17 questions, I think, that we include now. Um, some of them are focused on freedom of movement, like the ones I had just mentioned about choosing where to live and where to travel. Um, some of them are about occupational freedom, freedom of, of choosing your employment. So can you get a job in the same way as a man can? Can you work at night in the same way that a man can? Can a woman work in a dangerous job? Can a woman work in an industrial job? Right. And so countries that have some law on the book that restricts this, they're going to get a no. Um, and so for all of these questions, about you know signing a contract or can you register a business or can you open up a bank account? Um, all of these 17 variables, if the answer is yes, a woman can do this in the same way as a man, then the country, I give them a, a one for the, their score. If there is some law on the book that says, no, women have this extra barrier, that country gets a zero. So it's really, I create what's called dummy variables, zeros and ones. And I then take an average of all 17 of those uh, numbers. And so countries that get yes across the board, uh, they get a gender disparity index score of one, which would indicate that there's nothing on the books that additionally burden women. And then, um, so like I said, there are about 62 countries that have that for that for which that's true. So 62 countries get this score. Now Venezuela is on that list, right? Is Venezuela free? No. Um, but at least the women in Venezuela are not less free than the men. Um, they're all equally unfree. So um, so then we rank countries um, in terms of the ones that have complete parity and the ones where there's great gender disparity. Um, and then after we have that gender disparity index, we use it to adjust um, only the, the part of the economic freedom of the world index that measures um, rule of law. So the economic freedom of the world index has five different areas. So one is size of government. Another is, is property rights and rule of law. Another is um, like employment and labor market regulations, international trade, freedom, and um, sound monetary policy. So we have these five areas. And the one that the gender disparity index is used to adjust is that area that measures property rights and, and rule of law. Because rule of law means people are treated equally under the law. And if we have a lot of gender disparity under the law, then that would suggest that what we do not have is rule of law. We have a population of, of people who do not have the same set of rules as the rest of the, of the population. And so we just, um, we don't downward adjust that, um, that portion of the index as if everybody is, is less free. Um, we only kind of do it for 50% of the population, right? So, um, you know, we, we only adjust it for, for the women and, and we don't downward adjust the men's score. 
Um, and so that results in slightly lower economic freedom scores for countries that have a lot of barriers for women that men don't have to face. Um, and as you mentioned, some of the the biggest uh, the biggest countries that drop in terms of the index score, a lot of them are countries that don't seem. It's not terribly surprising that a lot of Middle Eastern and North African countries appear on the list. Um, there's also a lot of Southeast Asian countries, so Bangladesh and um, Malaysia. Those those countries also appear in in the set of of countries that have some of the largest gender disparities. Um, and people pay attention to the economic freedom of the world rankings. Uh, I know that there are people who you know build investment portfolios based on you know, which countries are, are moving up in the rankings and which countries are declining in the rankings. And people think about what are the quality of economic institutions if I want to go maybe open a business somewhere abroad or, or engage in some sort of foreign investment. They pay attention to these measures of how economically free countries are and, and because it gives them a sense of how secure is my investment going to be. And so when countries start seeing that they're dropping in the rankings, you know, they pay attention to that. And the hope is that in having this more accurate measure, there's a bit more of a catalyst for countries to remove those barriers. Um, that is really cool. <laughs> I did not even like think about this. That is awesome. So this is a very Smithian, like sort of invisible hand thing going on here that maybe people's lives are going to improve because of things that people are doing that aren't being done for that particular reason. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about Mill yeah. and Smith later on in the conversation and where they come into this conversation, but that's really cool. <laughs> I thought I'd ever, I didn't think about that. And I think that it's a really important part of the conversation. Um, and you talked a little bit about institutions and, you know, you say in your work that, uh, and I'm quoting you here, uh, understanding the relationship between markets and women's well-being requires a better understanding of the degree of access women have to market institutions. So a main theme that seems to be present in this research is the importance of institutions um, when we're talking about women's well-being and inequality. And you you defined it quickly in the, in the um, earlier part of the podcast now about that being mostly laws and rules and and all of that. And I'd like to just get into that a little bit more and why you're focusing on that and why it's obviously to you so important. So to me, if we want to understand things like, you know, why there's a gender wage gap, um, we need to understand the more nuanced aspects of our economic institutions. So we need more precise measures of the quality of economic institutions. Um, so that's one thing that I think this work does. Um, but another thing, it, it's kind of a response to some feminist critiques of, of markets and capitalism. Um, and I'm thinking of kind of the work of, you know, Nancy Fulber and, and Martha Nussbaum, um, where they they talk about um you know it's great you know that you know capitalism and markets provide a lot of benefits for the world but not everybody is going to be sharing equally in those benefits and so there's this common you know feminist 
uh, I don't want to say trope, but there's definitely this belief that capitalism exploits women and that women disproportionately, um, you know, their markets are propped up by the free labor of women um, because their household labor allows you know, us to participate, other people to participate in, in paid labor. It supports other people participating in the formal market. Um, and so I think a lot of feminists, a lot of a lot of the skepticism towards markets stems from this fact that they they observe that there are you know unequal outcomes and they assume that it is the market itself that is creating these unequal outcomes. And so part of what I want to, to do is just highlight the fact that, of course, there's unequal outcomes. People, women don't have equal access to markets. Uh, and so, you know, so that's part of it. I want to kind of I want to highlight that uh, because there's no way we could have e- equality over the outcome when you just are not able to have the same level of access. Um, but the other thing I like to think about in terms of this work is, is when feminists challenge market institutions, there's typically a, you know, a specific set of policy recommendations that that comes with. Right? And those policy recommendations are, we don't like this outcome. So we want to pass a law that particularly focuses on correcting the outcome. And you mentioned Adam Smith. So I think it's a very like man of systems type of understanding. Like, I don't like this outcome. Let's, you know, I don't like that most corporate boards are dominated by men. So let's pass a law that requires all corporate boards to have 40% women and, and that'll solve the problem. And what I think a lot of feminists don't pay attention to is that when we look at the economic research about you know, why these outcomes tend to be unequal. Um, So if you look at like Becker's work or or Claudia Golden's work, uh, a lot of the inequality over the the labor market outcomes stems from the different choices that men and women are making, right? They make, we make systematically different choices about what to major in in college. We make systematically different choices about, you know, which occupations to enter into, Um, And so a lot of the frustration with these market outcomes is a function of how the social norms influence the choices that we make and how some of the formal rules take certain choices off the table for us. And you can't legislate away social norms, right? You can't write into law that you know, men and women should divide household labor equally. Um, you can write into law things like uh, men and women should both have paternity leave, but then you can't control how people spend that paternity leave. So there's a, a great study um, about academia and you know trying to think through why there are so few female academics that get tenure and some universities pass policies uh, trying to kind of tackle that inequality over the outcome and say, well, we'll we'll stop the tenure clock for not just women who want to take maternity leave, but for, for male colleagues that are wanting to take 
you know, paternity leave. So we will give you a 10-year stop clock when you take leave for your parental, your, your newfound parental duties. Um, and so what they found is that the percentage, it increased the odds, having this policy in place increases the odds that men were going to get tenure and actually lowered the odds that women were going to get tenure. And so they're trying to think, why is that? Why is that? Because you cannot control how people spend their time when they are on their leave. And the women actually have to take care of and feed the baby. And it's really hard to do research when you're doing things like that. And a lot of the men used this as an opportunity to have like an additional sabbatical. And so like that's a gender norm thing that you have this policy that's trying to address this inequality over the outcome. And if you don't understand what that informal institutional context is, you're going to be very unpleasantly surprised when you get this unintended result that is somewhat the opposite of of what you were hoping for. So I'm really glad that you talked about um, outcomes and policy recommendations, because that is something I want to really get into after the break. But it's that time now that we'll just take a little bit of a break and we'll start talking about uh, that and more after after a couple of minutes. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm talking with Rosemary Fike today. Um, we're having a great conversation about all the work that she's been doing uh, about gender disparity. Um, but now we're getting to the part of the conversation where I want to see uh, what the outcomes might be. So is there any empirical evidence that economic freedom actually does lead to better outcomes for women? Uh, the main four ways that you reference outcomes in your research uh, seem to be economic and labor market outcomes, health outcomes, educational outcomes, and financial independence outcomes. Can you walk us through each of those and let us know if things are improving or if, if this could lead to improvement in those areas? Because that would sound really, really good to me. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things I do in the Women in Progress report, as you said, I, I try to at least look through kind of the statistical relationships between you know women's rights gender disparity, and some development outcomes that we might care about. And so um, I focus a lot on labor market outcomes because when the conversations happen about feminist issues and economics, a lot of them do surround what's going on in these labor market outcomes. And what I find is that countries that are more economically free um, both when I just look at you know regular economic freedom and when I look at gender adjusted economic freedom, um, women are a larger percentage of the workforce there. So we have we see larger or higher labor force participation rates for women in those countries, not higher than men, but higher than they are in economically unfree countries. 
Um, we see you know, lower rates of unemployment, especially among educated workers. So skilled worker, skilled women are, are much less likely to be unemployed. Um, and so, so one recent example of this, I had mentioned Saudi Arabia kind of improving a lot in terms of the restrictions that they've had on, on women's rights over the past two years. They've relaxed a ton of of restrictions. And in just the very short time that that's been going on, they've seen dramatic increases in the percentage of women that have joined the labor force. And this was during COVID, right? When like labor force is is not a very wonderful situation, but we're still seeing like in the US, and I think it's probably true in Canada, like we actually saw women's labor force participation rates drop dramatically again, kind of because of this uh, division of household labor, the kids are at home, they're going to school virtually. Well, who's going to have to step away from the labor market to do that? Well, disproportionately women. And so like everywhere else, we're seeing all these like shrinking labor force participation rates for women. But in Saudi Arabia, during that same time period, they're giving women more ability to access the labor market and they're, you know, swarming to it. And it's amazing. Um, and so, you know, aside from, you know, if, you know, having re- relaxing those labor market restrictions, you know, gives me more opportunity to participate in the labor market. But, you know, if I, there are some countries that have laws where I have to obey my husband and by law, and if I don't, I can be, you know, prosecuted as for disobedience, or um, I need my husband's permission before I can get a job, and so you know, it makes it really hard to to uh, excel in the labor force under that type of condition. Um, when it comes to educational outcomes, uh, you know, we get higher rates of of primary school completion higher rates of secondary school completion and higher rates of, you know, enrollment in, you know, the college, you know, post-secondary school level. Um, And that makes sense, right? Why would I invest so much in my education if I'm not allowed to own property and I'm not really going to have many labor market opportunities? Like, I went to college for a very long time and I absolutely would not have done that to myself if there was no expectation that it was going to help me do better in the labor market. Um, And so we see these labor market outcome improvements. We see, because, you know, we're expanding this, you know, to use the words of Adam Smith, we're expanding the scope of the market once we get rid of these restrictions. And so there's so many more additional opportunities to benefit from exchange once we, you know, have a more inclusive market. In terms of the financial independence outcomes, I love thinking about this because to me, you know, I've had a bank account since I was a really little kid. And it blows my mind that when you compare you know, the percentage of women that have a bank account in countries that are economically free, so in the most free countries, you know, over it's 86% of women have their own financial institution account. And in the least economically free countries, it's only a third. 
And that to me is there's two thirds of women in those countries who have no ability to save money. They have no ability to have any kind of financial independence, which puts them in a really vulnerable position. Um, And I'll come back to that in a minute uh, because what I didn't talk about are health outcomes. And, you know, it's not just that we are able to, you know, better excel in the labor market or have higher levels of educational attainment or material success, but women will live longer in countries that are more economically free and where there's less gender disparity. Uh, Child mortality rates are a lot lower. Um, Maternal mortality rates are a lot lower. So in economically free countries, I'm both more likely to survive labor and my child is more likely to survive. Um, Children are much less likely to die of uh, preventable deaths like things that you could have been vaccinated for or or, um, malnutrition type of issues. So there's really positive uh, health outcomes as well. Um, But I do want to come back to that vulnerable position because one of the reasons I think about economic freedom as being this essential human right is if you think about, you imagine you're a woman and you are in a very unpleasant household situation. I live in a country where I can't own property. I can't get a passport. I can't leave my house without some sort of male escort. I'm married to a very controlling husband. I don't have the ability to get a job because I need his permission and he's not giving it to me. I don't have access to a bank account. So how do I get out of that situation in the absence of economic freedom? But if you're in a country that has equal access to to economic freedom for men and women, you're in a country where women have these rights, I could get a job. I could open up a bank account that my husband doesn't know about. I could start making a plan and using my market opportunities to put my life in a better direction. Um, and, And I think that a lot of those things are impossible without economic freedom. Uh, I think it's, uh, great that you pointed out the bank account one because that was the one that really stuck out to me when I was reading the report. <laughs> that was the data point that I was like, what? I didn't even realize that it was uh, such a big number um, in that dis- that sort of disparity. And you're right that it has such a huge ripple effect on everything else and, and really does cause you to be more trapped in a lot of these um, situations. And you're talking about places where uh, women have to rely so much on uh, the man in their life to uh, give them grant the permission to do things, and you sort of instantly think about um, developing countries, uh, or uh, as they were once called, third world countries. And these are like third world problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they actually just third world problems, though? I feel like we should address a little bit the fact that uh, is it useful to think of it that way, or should we also be criticizing ourselves in the West more um, based on the research you're doing? Well, I mean. At least in the U.S., it really wasn't that long ago where women still needed to get permission from their husbands to open up a credit card. Like that was the 80s. I was alive in the 80s. That wasn't that long ago where we still had those types of laws on the books. 
right? And in the US in the 30s and 40s, there used to be laws that once you got married, you had to quit your job. Um, so you couldn't have married women working. Um, those mar- they were called marriage bars, right? And so, so you know, we were pretty developed. Obviously, we're more developed now, but I would never have thought about the US in the 40s being an underdeveloped nation, yet these are laws that are not so far in our distant past, right? They're right there. Um, but I've had a lot of conversations with people talking about, you know, kind of the flip side of that. Like, why are we talking about inequality for women? Haven't we solved that problem? Women can vote. We don't have any laws on the books that prevent women from doing things formally. And they forget that there's a whole bunch of countries in the world where women are literally still fighting for these basic rights. Um, And so maybe it's in our, our not so distant past, but it is still very much the reality of a lot of women across the world. Um, and, you know, as somebody that does live in the United States, I, we cannot guarantee that things get better and better and better for women all the time. Like we have situations where I live in Texas and I have fewer rights today than I did two years ago. Um, and so this is not something that, we can sleep on, so to speak. Um, it's something you have to be vigilant about that. Very well said. And given that, uh, do you have a positive or negative view on how things are presently going in terms of gender disparity? What are some of the policy recommendations that you might make to ensure things keep getting better for women all over the world? That's a big question, but yeah. just generally speaking. Well, I think that a lot of the things that countries can do are actually lower opportunity cost policies than some of the more traditional recommendations that feminists make, right? You know, if I want to implement gender quotas, then that's restricting the ability for a business owner to choose who they want for the particular position, right? So, so those laws, not only do they have you know, unpredictable outcomes, not always what we would hope, but it also infringes on the the economic freedom of other people. Um, So from my perspective, that's a pretty high opportunity cost path. And instead, it is pretty low in terms of the resource requirements for a country to get rid of a law that says women can't work at night. Right. And not only is it pretty low opportunity cost, you might actually save some dollars in terms of now nobody has to enforce this law. Uh, We don't have to spend resources trying to make sure businesses aren't hiring women to work at night. Um, So it, it seems to me that just simply removing some of these barriers is really not something that should be costly. To, to society um, and, and potentially with huge benefits. Um, a few years ago, there was a paper by Cuberis and Tegmir. I, I always pre- mispronounced this last name, um, but it was published in 2016 in the Journal of Human Capital. And they were estimating, you know, essentially 
what is the economic impact of having these types of of barriers to to women's access to markets? Not quite the same things that I'm measuring, but they were looking at more like entrepreneurial gaps and and barriers that um, inequalities in terms of female participation. And they found that, you know, if you exclude as little as 5% of the population from participating in the market, you lose two and a half percent of GDP. And that's, that's significant. Um, So if I think about, you know, Saudi Arabia in 2020, Saudi Arabia per capita income was about 20,000 US dollars per person. And even on the low end, that 2.5% of, of per capita GDP is you're giving up five, a little over $500 per person per year um, when you have restrictions on women. And that's on the low end. Um, some of the countries that have much more severe restrictions uh, are potentially losing upwards of like 15 to 20% of what they'd be able to earn through exchange because they're artificially limiting the scope of who can participate in the market and how. I don't need a law to tell me that I am probably not going to be successful as a construction worker. I just do not have the interest or the physical capacity on my own to do it. I don't need a law to tell me. The market is pretty rapidly going to give me the feedback that I'm not good at that job. Um, But that's not to say that there's not women who are going to be amazing at that job. And, you know, it should be the market feedback that guides them. It shouldn't be someone saying we need to protect, uh, you know, the reproductive capacity of women. Because very honestly, a lot of those labor market restrictions, not working with pesticides, not working with chemicals, not not doing heavy lifting, not working at jobs at night. It's about protecting like the safety and the purity and the ability for women to to have babies. Um, and that to me is, well, definitely paternalistic, but also unnecessary, right? It, market feedback will guide me to where my highest contribution to society will be. And for some women, their highest, most beneficial contribution is going to be in areas where they're currently not permitted to operate. Um, we're nearing the end of the the uh, podcast, sadly, because it's been a really great conversation. But one question before I wrap up um, officially uh, is to ask you: uh, There might be a tendency for many people to uh, look at this as something recent, like "Oh, now we're thinking about this," or uh, "Now people are waking up to this idea that women should be included." But actually, um, you mentioned in your research that. Um, the idea that economic freedom will expand the scope of the market and everyone benefits is not something we just discovered recently, um, and one that includes women as well. And you mentioned that it's something that people like John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith have have even talked about. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about those two and even others and how they approach this argument and why it's important to our conversation today? Yeah, I mean, John Stuart Mill is a, a really good uh 
classical scholar to, to focus on because he was one of the first prominent male voices to explicitly argue against a system of both formal and informal rules that treated women as, as lesser than men. So he has that book, The Subjection of Women. Um, he was also pretty inspired by his wife, Harriet, who was brilliant. Um, and so thinking about what a loss to society it is that we have laws that prevent innovative, creative, brilliant people from offering their talents to the world. Right? And so Mill's argument is very much a Smithian one, right? When people are able to choose for themselves how to live their life, they are naturally inclined to make choices that raise their own position in life. And when we're operating in, in kind of a set of market voluntary um, institutions, I cannot profit, I cannot make myself better off without doing things that also make other people better off, right? If we just think about you know the equation for profits, revenue minus expenses, I cannot earn a profit Unless I generate value to customers, that's my revenue, my value to the customer that is higher than my costs of production. I have to create wealth and the profit is the reward I get for creating wealth. Um, and so if I want to make myself better off and, and earn profits, I have to allocate my time, my efforts, my talents in a way that creates value for other people. I have to serve other people. So other people benefit from us. Um, and so Mill, he didn't just apply that argument to, to women, or right? he was very vocal about, you know, supporting uh, the abolition of slavery um, for similar reasons. And he also had to kind of contend with the dominant view at the time that, you know, women are benefiting from this system of subjugation because they're, they make bad choices. Women are naturally more delicate or naturally less intelligent. And so he was making the argument that, no, it's not natural differences in our intelligence and capabilities. It's the fact that we've had this system of institutions that have prevented us from being able to take direction of our own lives so we've been cut off from educational opportunities. We've been insulated from being able to learn how to make good decisions because someone else is doing it for us. Um, and so, of course, you're going to observe these differences in outcomes, but it's not because of human nature. It's because of institutions that exclude people. Um, and so I think that people who care about, you know, social justice issues, uh, that this issue of economic freedom is, is one that they should pay a lot of attention to because um, it's all about making economic institutions more inclusive, uh, at least the way I see it. It's, it's about expanding that scope of who we engage in trade with and who we divide labor with. And, and that ultimately makes us all wealthier. So we've talked about a lot. Um, let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, 
what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how inequality affects women's well-being? So I think one main takeaway that I would want people to have is that markets themselves are not they're not things that exploit women. They are also often vehicles for women to improve their situation in life. They they could be a life raft for a lot of women. And so I want to challenge that kind of dominant feminist perspective and and encourage people to to think about economic rights as basic human rights. Um, The other thing I want to, to kind of, or hopefully that people will take away is that when we focus too much on just the inequality over the outcome, we it's like treating a fever without like understanding why you have a fever. It's treating the symptom of a problem without really trying to understand what is causing those symptoms and trying to understand more about that institutional context. What are the formal rules like? Who's allowed to do this and who's not allowed to do this? Um, and what also the informal rules are like, that that will go a long way to helping us understand where these unequal outcomes come from in the first place. And then if we just look at the evidence of, you know, women are just better off in places that are more economically free. And, and that's really important to note because if feminists advocate a lot for rules that reduce economic freedom in order to facilitate better equitable or better equal outcomes, um, then they might be like killing the golden goose that brings a lot of benefits, um, not just to men, but also to women. And that is something that I think we should be cautious about. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Sikang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vopenford. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Elchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 